0: In southern Sweden, it was a sunny day. And it's not that common in Sweden in May to have really good weather.
1: It was 2019, and Robert Falk and his team were about to achieve a world first.
0: We had two warehouses, and uh, in between there was a public road.
1: Their company had been approved a permit to drive their new truck, the POD, down the road between the warehouses. The sleek white vehicle with its angular sculpted design was like nothing else you'd ever normally see on that road.
0: It was only a few hundred metres.
1: But this short journey was a big deal. Because there wasn't going to be a driver in the cab. The truck didn't even have a cab. This was an autonomous vehicle made by Robert's company, Enride. And it was the first time a self-driving truck had been on any public road in the world.
0: It was such a proud moment to see it there, drive out the gates and onto public road, and doing exactly what it was designed to do. We were headline news on the BBC, and it was us, Trump and Sudan that were making headlines, and it was a very surreal experience. The future is always created in step, and we took a huge First up.
1: Welcome to the Future Lab podcast, telling the stories behind the technological innovations that are taking imagined visions of the future and turning them into a present-day reality. I'm meeting people who are tackling the biggest problems facing planet Earth and developing technologies that will change how we live our lives. I'm Lucy Johnston. I'm the curator of the annual FutureLab Live exhibition at the Goodwood Festival of Speed. And I study the impact of new technologies on industry, society, and the world around us. In this episode, replacing the human driver.
2: You cannot just ignore the future. You have to understand it. It's happening regardless if you like it or not.
3: Motorsport always provides that environment where you can push the limits, push the boundaries of the technology.
0: At the end of this decade, it's going to be a common sight to see autonomous vehicles going down the road.
4: This podcast is brought to you by a medical diagnostic company called Randox, and over the series we're going to be hearing about the work they do and the people who work there.
5: My name's Tiffany Dougherty. I work within the clinical immunoassay R&D biochip team at Randox.
4: That sounds quite
5: complicated, but then Tiffany is a scientist. Panel testing, fully automated analyzers, evidence immunoanalyzer, biomarker test, test, test. test. I've worked at Randox for seven years. I feel like no two days are the same and I've never had a boring day at my job, which I love. It's just really rewarding knowing that you're making a difference and it's potentially impacting people's lives. The quicker and more accurate diagnosis people get helps aid their healthcare journey.
4: Tiffany's team has been working on ways to revolutionise how medical tests are carried out.
5: So our team work on the development of clinical tests for a range of disease conditions such as thyroid disease or fertility diseases.
4: The tests they're developing are based on a tiny but incredible piece of technology invented by Randox called a biochip. The biochip is going to play a major role in other Randox stories coming up in the series, and later in this episode, we'll return to Tiffany to find out exactly what the biochip is and how it works. Now, back to the Future Lab podcast.
1: There's no doubt that the future of transport is autonomous. It's a change that's just around the corner, even if, for most of us, it's hard to imagine. In the next few years, it'll become far more common to see vehicles on our roads with no visible driver behind the wheel. In this episode, we're looking at just how that transition is going to happen. In the first episode of this podcast, we touched on how extreme sports often lead the way in bringing new technologies to the forefront. It's no different when it comes to autonomous vehicles. In the world of motorsport, fans and professionals alike are having to face the inevitable arrival of AI-controlled race cars. Many people are understandably cynical about the idea. Why would you want to replace our motor racing heroes with a computer? But not everyone looks at it that way.
2: My name is Lucas de Grassi. I'm Brazilian, 36 years old.
1: Lucas is a three-time podium finisher at the Le Mans 24 Hours and a Macau Grand Prix champion. He's raced in Formula One, sports cars, stock cars, GTs and helped create the only electric FIA World Championship, Formula E.
2: Which I've been racing now for seven seasons. I won one championship and ten races.
1: He's also the former CEO and current supervisory board member of RoboRace, the organisation boldly striving to create the first global championship for autonomous race cars. So clearly he's not feeling too threatened by the idea of self-driving cars. Lucas started racing cars when he was a kid, but it wasn't always a sure thing that he'd go down that path.
2: I wanted as a Brazilian to be a football player, I wanted to be a tennis player, I wanted to be an astronaut. You know, I want to be pretty much everything.
1: But his father and uncle started a go-kart shop.
2: So when I was young, I was like going with my father, you know, uh, over the weekends. And then at one point, when I was about eight years old, I, I was kind of at the same level as my father. And then at one point, my father said, "Okay, I started doing these like local races, then national races, then international races. And that's how I started.
1: For this kid who was into cars, but also tennis, football and so many other hobbies... The real turning point came in May 1994, when Brazilian racing driver Ayrton Senna died in a crash at the San Marino Grand Prix.
2: I never seen anything like that, like Brazil stopped. I have these images in my head that, you know, Brazil stopping, crying for three days, my mom crying, my father crying, for somebody that we didn't even know like properly, you know? And that was kind of very powerful, saying, "Okay, I guess motorsport, if I'm good enough, that's a way to do something good for my country. And it definitely helped to shape my career from that moment onwards.
1: After that, Lucas began his racing career in earnest.
2: It's very hard to see from the outside, but the the motorsport career is... It's very harsh and and very bumpy along the road, up to a point that you're almost like quitting because you don't have the sponsor, you don't have any team, then you get a chance to do this, and then you do well, and then you go again.
1: Despite the bumps, Lucas kept going, navigating life as a professional racing driver, never quite knowing what was coming next or what his future held. When he got behind the wheel of an electric car for the first time...
2: In 2010...
1: It was the start of a new era in his racing career.
2: We had a sponsor in the F1 team, and he did an event in July in Las Vegas. And one of the guys had a Tesla. I never heard of it or never know, electric cars for me were golf carts. And when I drove it, I was pretty impressed with how the, the car reacted. That's how Formula E came along in 2012.
1: Lucas was the third person to join the newly launched electric car racing series. That choice, to join the electric revolution, would change Lucas's life path in ways he never could have predicted.
2: In one of the Formula E races, I met this guy. I actually gave him a lift in my car after dinner to the airport.
1: The guy's name was Denis Sverdlov, founder and CEO of... ...of a zero-emissions public transportation company called Arrival.
2: And we're talking the whole time about future technologies, electric cars. I asked him what he thought about electric cars.
1: Dennis had been experimenting with converting classic cars to electric... ...and he'd made an electric truck. He told Lucas...
2: Come and see it when you arrive in London.
1: Intrigued, Lucas took him up on the offer... And when the pair met up, Dennis shared something even more intriguing.
2: He was like, I want to create an autonomous racing series.
1: Self driving race cars. The series would be called Robo Race.
2: I was like, oh, that's pretty bold. I mean, the difficulty was
1: huge. But Dennis was serious. A little further down the line, he came back to Lucas.
2: Would you like to be involved in Robo Race? Then I started like, listening to the guys that knew about the topic and I started doing some research, reading some books about autonomous technology.
1: Trying to understand how Roborace could work as a series.
4: Future Lab is brought to you by Randox. Earlier, we met Tiffany, who works in the research and development team. Now she's back to tell us more about Randox's innovative medical testing technology, the Biochip.
5: Biochips are actually a physical ceramic 9x9mm surface, and on that surface there will be test regions that will correspond to different tests for the patient.
4: Here's how medical testing usually works. If you're feeling unwell, your doctor will investigate your symptoms. So when you visit your GP, you'll get a blood draw. And they'll use that sample to look at different biomarkers.
5: A biomarker is a measurement of an individual's health. So it's just basically a measurement of the status of a certain, say, protein or hormone in a person's blood. Traditionally, multiple biomarker tests are usually required for a single diagnosis. This means doctors often have to get you in for multiple blood tests before they
4: can diagnose your illness. Randox realised this process was pretty inefficient, so they wanted to find a way to run way more tests per patient sample. And this is what the biochip lets them do. So
5: once the sample is added to the biochip, a light signal will be generated from each of the test regions. And this is simultaneously detected using our digital imaging technology. So from a single blood draw, you'll be able to get multiple test results from the one patient sample.
4: This lets a doctor get a much better picture of what's going on for their patient without needing to do multiple blood tests over several days or weeks. But faster, more efficient diagnosis of illnesses isn't the only thing the biochip can do. We'll be back later in the episode with more on that.
2: The early project was the Robocar, which does not allow the human to be inside. Robocar is basically a pure AI-driven car. Very cool design, very sophisticated, four motors with a battery on the floor, 800 kilowatts.
1: Imagine if a sleek F1-style open-wheel race car was crossed with a Jedi Starfighter, but with no cockpit. Because, of course, there's no driver. This was an advanced autonomous car
2: but the software was not ready. The first tests were like this. Open space, airport, put a lot of cones, make the car go around it, scan it. Then the car go faster and faster, try to figure out friction map for the the brake discs. You're trying to figure out sleep angles. You're trying to figure out GPS precision. You're trying to figure out all of that and combine that into the, the whole algorithm to make sure that the car is driving in the best way possible and then we went from that to racing tracks doing time-lapse then doing overtakes so interaction and yeah and then improving year by year it was a long journey
1: trying to get self-driving technology to a level where it can drive as well as a human that's where it really helps to be in an environment centred around competition. After all, the engineers working at RoboRace have a pretty amazing incentive getting them out of bed every morning.
2: We had a bet, which was extended, still extended today, that uh, the arrival team needs to beat me. So every three to four months to six months, we do a challenge, like arrival versus Lucas. I drive like 10 laps, then the latest algorithm takes the car and tries to beat my time.
3: The motivation for the the developers to drive against Lucas, you know, as a professional racing driver, is incredibly high.
1: This is Bryn Bolkham, the Chief Strategy Officer at Roborace and a leading mind in the world of autonomous vehicles.
2: The competition is real. I mean, I have 20 years of data of being a racing driver uh, stored in my brain. When you see Lucas there on his own and a big team
3: of engineers on the other side, They want to beat him. They are looking through that data, wondering where they can gain that time to try and beat him.
2: It's starting to get very close.
1: But teaching a machine to make judgment calls the way a human does, that's complicated.
3: There's still a long way to go to make these systems learn from small amounts of data. AI is great if you throw loads of data at it and you're building a a good old average. What humans are really good at, you know, what Lucas is really good at, is picking up one data point.
1: Picking one data point and learning a really complex lesson based on just that incident. Take this one test RoboRace did recently.
3: There was a particular chicane where I saw the vehicle go in and correct and oversteer and then get back onto the racing line and did it gracefully. The next lap round, you're looking for what is the vehicle going to do in that corner. And you would imagine that a human driver would go in and not make that mistake again. The AI in this particular way its programmed just went in and it went even harder than it did the lap before and then yeah, pretty much lost control.
1: So that's the big difference. A human, using their judgement and by understanding the context, would know to watch out for that corner next time.
3: Humans are incredibly good at doing that. AI is, is
2: not so much, you know.
1: That said though...
2: I already see that he's doing some stuff better than I do. So I'm actually learning, at one point I'm learning how to take a different approach from the AI itself.
1: So the feedback loop goes this way too. This development environment is helping self-driving technology accelerate at a pace, but the technology can also help human drivers get even better at what they do.
2: In the last test we did, actually two tests ago, It was the first time I saw that uh, AI was taking a different approach in a specific corner. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try that next time. And I tried and it was quite good. After that day, I was super proud saying, look, I think in the future that will be the way forward. You don't need to compare yourself with the best human. You need to compare yourself with what the best it can actually go and then trying to learn from it. Imagine that for a kid in a go-kart and the go-kart goes by itself, and it's the best it can actually go. And then the kid has to learn to do the corner based on what is the best possible, not based on another kid.
1: Bryn compares this to the apps you can now get for playing chess.
3: The interesting thing that they're doing with the AI now is it becomes a personal trainer. So it looks at the way you play games against it, and from that it's able to say, okay, well, you're at that level. And then it devises, effectively, a a training technique for you in order for you to level up. If you're constantly being beaten by the AI, it's not a pleasure. If it's too easy to beat it, it's not a pleasure. You have to find that sweet spot where you go, OK, this is a good competition, this is fair, and also I'm learning. We'll see exactly the same in a motorsport domain.
1: The latest vehicle from Roborace is the DevBot 2.0. With a cockpit for the driver, and a computer processor that can handle 24 trillion operations per second, the car's autonomous system gathers information from six cameras and a mix of radar, LIDAR and ultrasound sensors. But despite the progress that's been made on Robo Race, not everyone's hailing the arrival of this new era in motorsport.
2: Like every disruptive technology, regardless of what it is, people tend to criticise. If you don't understand it fully with a shallow overview it's very easy to come to conclusions which are untrue. And with robo race is not different. A lot of racing drivers came to me and said, "Ah, you are like killing our sport and will take our jobs and it's it's not cool what you're doing or making fun of it."
1: This is a tension you see a lot as new technologies emerge. It's one of the things I find fascinating about this industry, looking at how society has to adapt as old technology becomes obsolete and the jobs market shifts around changing skill sets demanded by this evolving world. In the case of motorsport, Lucas doesn't think people should fear the change that's coming.
2: He said, guys, you sound almost like Kodak, saying that digital cameras or phones would never be able to take a picture with the same quality as the film picture. You cannot just ignore the future. You have to understand it. You have to realize that uh, it's happening regardless if you like it or not. There is key technology advancements that only happens once every lifetime Even if autonomous cars could go much faster, much better, much safer than any human driver, I think people still want to see who is the best human. The racing will still exist. The best driver will still be racing. We cannot prevent technology development that will save hundreds of thousands of lives globally because of ego of 10 or 20 drivers.
1: Lucas says the only way to keep motorsport alive and keep investment flowing into the sport is to embrace autonomous technology.
2: Why not incorporate that into traditional motorsport? Uh, let's make the pit stop fully autonomous and the driver takes control back. Let's make, the, in Le Mans, one stint fully autonomous and the other stint the driver takes over. A combination between human and machine.
1: The Roborace vision for the future of motorsport is one where fully driverless cars can battle it out on the best circuits in the world, but also where human drivers can do even more exciting races, working with AI to push the limits of their driving capabilities in a safer way. But there's even more ways to evolve what motorsport looks like by combining autonomous technology with augmented reality. Here's Bryn Bolcom again.
3: It's this idea that you can actually bridge the physical world and the digital world together. First, you build a virtual environment of the track you're racing at. So you have a digital twin of that. But then you can take the actual real-time data coming from the car and where it's located, send that into the digital world and have a replica of the car driving in the digital world. Then beyond that, what you can do is now have virtual objects and their locations controlled from this simulation digital environment and send their location back to the physical world. Now the physical car is driving, responding to a virtual object as if it's physically real. So you can have a virtual bus, for example, on the racetrack at the same time as the car, and the car would avoid the virtual bus as if it's real.
1: This ability to combine real and virtual worlds means you can dramatically increase the complexity of the environments you create for racing and reduce the risk to drivers.
3: We have Collectibles and avoidables, effectively obstacles. A collectible you have to drive over, gives you a time bonus, you know an obstacle. If you hit the obstacle it gives you a time penalty.
1: If you've ever played Mario Kart, imagine that, but in real life and at full scale.
3: It's very strange when you're at the track side and you see the car moving and you're like, well, why is that car moving? What's it avoiding? Um, But obviously within uh, video production, we add the augmented reality objects back into the scene. So as as far as the viewers at home is concerned, it it looks like a physical object. I'm waiting for the day when effectively augmented reality glasses become available, where you can sit in the grandstand and see all of these augmented reality objects in the environment. And then if you took that one step further and you looked at augmented reality visors or windscreens for human drivers then they can start to play and interact with these virtual objects as well so the future of this technology is incredibly inspiring and exciting once you get past that barrier of oh no it's taking away the human it's like no 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 it's adding a whole lot more back into the sport that hasn't existed before
2: when autonomous drivers are quicker in a racetrack than humans in every condition or quicker than the the fastest humans out there, will be such a powerful change. And to be able to accelerate that because of safety, because of improving quality of life, reducing the cost of transportation, cleaning transportation up, optimizing resources and transportation, even if RoboRace is doing a, a small dent in the whole graph of changing that, it's already enough, and it's already super proud to, to have been involved with it.
3: Motorsport always provides that environment where you can push the limits, push the boundaries of the technology. We hold the world record at Roborace for the fastest autonomous car. You know, it's 187 miles per hour. You have exactly the same team, the one that they put together for the Roborace software at the beginning, now developing software for arrivals vans that is being used to automate depots for example for delivery drivers you build the team you build the stack and then you use it for different applications
1: brin says there are two key applications for autonomous driving technology first robo taxis so it's your taxi app but the car pulling up to give you a ride has no human driver to be seen and second delivery driving
3: So whether that's low speed in city
0: or whether that's the autonomous trucks that are being used. At the end of this decade, it's going to be a common sight to see autonomous vehicles going down the road. And that's going to impact how we build cities, where we build the cities and how we live our lives.
1: That's up next when we go back to Enride, our autonomous truck pioneers from the beginning of the episode.
4: FutureLab is brought to you by Randox. Earlier, we heard from Tiffany Doherty about how Randox's biochip technology lets doctors run a huge number of different tests using just one patient blood sample. But as well as helping diagnose patients who are presenting with symptoms at their GP, it can also be used to improve on early detection of health problems, sometimes even spotting potential illnesses before the patient starts experiencing symptoms.
5: If we can provide simpler ways to measure multiple patient samples and multiple biomarkers simultaneously, technology such as our biochip can help propel research in this area. For example, troponin is the gold standard for diagnosing a heart attack.
4: Troponin is a protein found in your heart muscles, which gets released into your bloodstream during a heart attack.
5: But We have markers on our biochip for like, heart fatty acid binding protein, which is actually an early marker of heart attack.
4: So by testing for troponin and fatty acid binding protein, plus other biomarkers that Randox can measure from one blood sample on their biochip.
5: You're able to provide a more accurate diagnosis and a quicker diagnosis by building on the clinical picture.
4: The biochip also has uses outside of the medical context. For example, in the world of food and drink.
5: We can actually test, say, for example, wine for different additives. We have tests, say, for um, antimicrobials and honey for additives in milk.
4: The biochip can even be used in forensic toxicology, for example, to test for drug residue, and all this on a 9x9mm ceramic square. We'll be diving into other applications for the biochip in coming episodes of the podcast. In the meantime, find out more about the work Randox does by visiting randoxhealth.com.
0: My name is Robert Falk, I'm the CEO and founder of Enride.
1: Like Roborace, this company is also staking its future on self-driving technology. And what they're doing is going to be very visible in our day-to-day lives, because they're focused on automating trucks.
0: The industry with literally transporting everything we have around us.
1: If Enride succeeds, it won't just change the way our roads look, with driverless vehicles winding their way across the country, it'll also have a profound environmental impact.
0: Every goods, all our food is at some point transported with diesel-based freight transport systems. Those trucks constitute between 7 or 8% of the global co 2 emission. The current industry is literally millions and millions and millions of trucks going around transporting what we need on an everyday basis. But if we want to change this, we have to replace those diesel engines with something else.
1: Enride wants to replace them with electric trucks that can travel the world autonomously without the need for a human driver.
0: Autonomous and electric are two technologies really combine very well together. If we make the choice, we can utilise this new technology to create a more competitive transport system that's electric.
1: Like Lucas, Robert and his co-founders at Enride are convinced that autonomous vehicles are about to become part of our lives.
0: It's a big, massive change that's coming, whether we like it or not.
1: And they say it's essential that when the change comes, it's powered by electricity, not diesel.
0: Autonomous will increase our travelling. It will increase the number of miles being driven.
1: This might seem counterintuitive. For most of us, picturing a driverless future means picturing a more efficient future where we assume there are fewer vehicles on the road. But in the trucking industry, the opposite's likely to be true. If we have trucks that don't need a human driver at the wheel, that can do more miles in less time, demand for the transportation of all sorts of goods will rise to meet this potential.
0: And that would mean also increased emissions.
1: So if we fit out these trucks with technology that's autonomous and electric…
0: We can actually reduce the CO2 emissions from transport. And that's where we have the choice. I think our responsibilities, as humans, is to create something better for the next generation. The reason why we started the company was to drive this change and to challenge the existing industry to become more sustainable.
1: For Robert, that mission is both personal and professional.
0: In my previous position, I helped to produce the diesel engines. So, I mean, for me personally, I couldn't be part of the problem. I wanted to be part of the solution.
1: Robert studied mechanical engineering. Back around 2009, he got to spend some time at Stanford University, right in the heart of Silicon Valley.
0: That's where I first came across to self-driving technology, Uh, literally sitting and drinking beer together with a few people that were involved in the first uh, pilots uh, at Stanford for doing cars autonomous. Back then, there was literally people (laughs) putting things on a car and hoping not to hit something.
1: After that, Robert returned to Sweden. He
0: started the automotive industry in the trucking industry, literally building trucks from nuts and bolts all the way up to complete vehicles.
1: The trucking and haulage industry is big in his home country, the biggest in Scandinavia, because of its great location for distributing goods around Northern Europe. Robert worked his way up through the industry – eventually becoming Head of Global Manufacturing and Engineering at Volvo. Combining all his experience in the industry with what he'd seen in Silicon Valley, he began to ask himself a question.
0: If you want to design a completely new type of transport system, how would it look like and how would it work?
1: Robert landed on autonomous electric vehicles for several reasons. One was sustainability. A way to meet the demand for goods transportation while getting diesel engines off the roads. Then there's road safety. Like Bryn said earlier about robo-race, human judgment is hard to replicate in a self-driving vehicle. The ability to learn from single mistakes, for example. But there are some things machines definitely do better than people.
0: Computer doesn't get tired, doesn't drink alcohol,
1: the Enride team began working on getting the idea out of Robert's head and onto the road.
0: The basis is that it's an electric drivetrain with batteries, and then it's a setup of sensors, radars, and we have vision system, literally a normal camera that do object detection. And then we have something we call a LADAR. A LADAR is literally a laser beam being sent out in all directions to literally measure the distance of an object around you. The computer then uses all these sensors to generate a complete understanding of its surrounding. Every corner of the vehicle allowing us to navigate that map with the help of the sensors.
1: One of the most striking things about the Enride trucks is the lack of a cab up front. And just like with robo-race, that also raises the inevitable question. If we move to driverless delivery vehicles, what will happen to truck drivers' jobs?
0: Literally what we've done is to make the truck driver an operator and sitting and operating it remotely. Then the computer is helping the operator to drive the vehicle, but the operator can monitor, make decisions and help to interact with the other humans in the surroundings. And that allows us to get the benefits of the autonomous but still allows to have the agility and the flexibility with a human driver.
1: In terms of the look of the trucks, they really are beautiful pieces of design and engineering. And that's not something I would usually say about a truck. When we staged the global unveil of Enride's logging truck at the Future Lab exhibition in 2018, it was one of the most photographed vehicles at the whole event. It's always really interesting to look at the aesthetic choices that technologists make when they're designing products intended to shape the future in radical ways.
0: And the whole design and setup was literally with the purpose of visualising the potential future and how it could look like. We made it white. With the inspiration of both Star Wars and Star Trek and all of that, we put into designing something that would be very Firm and very steady workhorse that brings our goods to our tables. And if you look from the vehicle from the side, we wanted to make an animal design that really tells reliability. So from the side, it looks like a bison or something really sturdy animal. I think we're trying to design it intriguing and also with inspiring the imagination of what the future could look like.
1: Enride have been testing their pods since 2017, and they continue to work on new applications for autonomous vehicles, as well as the regulatory side of the process, getting approval to take their driverless trucks on the road at scale.
0: What we did with the design and the pod is literally an argument for my view of the future and now it's up to the rest of society to see if this is something we want to see or if this is something that we want to build our future on. I think it is but I'm very humble for the fact that we together have to decide how we want our future to look like.
1: The Future Lab podcast is brought to you by Randox. It's presented by me, Lucy Johnston. The producers are Arlie Adlington, Paul Smith and Peggy Sutton from Something Else with Neil Cole. The annual Future Lab Live exhibition is taking place at the Goodwood Festival of Speed from July 8th to 11th. Click the link in our show notes to find out more and book tickets to see for yourself some of the incredible technologies we're talking about in this podcast.